This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What I Saw in America by G. K. Chesterton. Section 2. Chapter 1. Part 2. What is America? Take that innocent question. Are you an anarchist, which is intrinsically quite as impudent as are you an optimist or are you a philanthropist? I'm not discussing here whether these things are right, but whether most of us are in a position to know them rightly. Now it is quite true that most Englishmen do not find it necessary to go about all day asking each other whether they are anarchists. It is quite true that the phrase occurs in no British forms that I have seen. But this is not only because most of the Englishmen are not anarchists. It is even more because even the anarchists are Englishmen. For instance, it would be easy to make fun of the American formula by noting that the cap would fit all sorts of bald academic heads. It might well be maintained that Herbert Spencer was an anarchist. It is practically certain that Auberon Herbert was an anarchist. But Herbert Spencer was an extraordinarily typical Englishman of the nonconformist middle class, and Auberon Herbert was an extraordinarily typical English aristocrat of the old and genuine aristocracy. Everyone knew in his heart that the squire would not throw a bomb at the queen, and the nonconformist would not throw a bomb at anybody. Everyone knew that there was something subconscious in a man like Auberon Herbert which would have come out only in throwing bombs at the enemies of England, as it did come out in his son and namesake, the generous and unforgotten, who fell flinging bombs from the sky far beyond the German line. Everyone knows that normally, in the last resort, the English gentleman is patriotic. Everyone knows that the English nonconformist is national, even when he denies that he is patriotic. Nothing is more notable indeed than the fact that nobody is more stamped with the mark of his own nation than the man who says that there ought to be no nations. Somebody called Cobden the international man, but no man could be more English than Cobden. Everyone recognizes Tolstoy as the iconoclast of all patriotism, but nobody could be more Russian than Tolstoy. In the old countries where there are these national types, the types may be allowed to hold any theories. Even if they hold certain theories, they are unlikely to do certain things. So the conscientious objector, in the English sense, may be and is one of the peculiar by-products of England. But the conscientious objector will probably have a conscientious objection to throwing bombs. Now I am very far from intending to imply that these American tests are good tests or that there is no danger of tyranny becoming the temptation of America. I shall have something to say later on about that temptation or tendency. Nor do I say that they apply consistently this conception of a nation with the soul of a church, protected by religious and not racial selection. If they did apply that principle consistently, they would have to exclude pessimists and rich cynics who deny the democratic ideal. An excellent thing, but a rather improbable one. What I say is that when we realize that this principle exists at all, we see the whole position in a totally different perspective. We say that the Americans are doing something heroic, or doing something insane, 
or doing it in an unworkable or unworthy fashion, instead of simply wondering what the devil they are doing. When we realize the democratic design of such a cosmopolitan commonwealth, and compare it with our insular reliance or instincts, we see at once why such a thing has to be not only democratic but dogmatic. We see why, in some points, it tends to be inquisitive or intolerant. Anyone can see the practical point by merely transferring into private life a problem like that of the two academic anarchists who might, by a coincidence, be called the two Herberts. Suppose a man said, Buffle, my old Oxford tutor, wants to meet you. I wish you'd ask him down for a day or two. He has the oddest opinions, but he's very stimulating. It would not occur to us that the oddity of the Oxford Don's opinions would lead him to blow up the house, because the Oxford Don is an English type. Suppose somebody said, Do let me bring old Colonel Robinson down for the weekend. He's a bit of a crank, but quite interesting. We should not anticipate the colonel running amuck with a carving knife and offering up human sacrifice in the garden, for these are not among the daily habits of an old English colonel, and because we know his habits we do not care about his opinions. But suppose somebody offered to bring a person from the interior of Kamskatka to stay with us for a week or two, and added that his religion was very extraordinary religion we should feel a little more inquisitive about what kind of religion it was. If somebody wished to add Harry Anu to the family party at Christmas, explaining that his point of view was so individual and interesting, we should want to know a little more about it and him, we should be tempted to draw up as a fantastic an examination paper as presented to the immigrant going to America. We should ask what a hairy Anu was, and how hairy he was, and above all what sort of Anu he was. Would etiquette require us to ask him to bring his wife, and if we did ask him to bring his wife, how many wives would he bring? In short, as in the American formula, is he a polygamist? Merely as a point of housekeeping and accommodation, the question is not irrelevant. Is hairy Anu content with hair, or does he wear any clothes? If the police insist on his wearing clothes, will he recognize the authority of the police? In short, as in American formula, is he an anarchist? Of course, this generalization about America, like other historical things, is subject to all sorts of cross-divisions and exceptions, to be considered in their place. The Negroes are a special problem because of what white men in the past did to them. The Japanese are a special problem because of what men fear that they in the future may do to white men. The Jews are a special problem because of what they and the Gentiles in the past, present and future seem to have the habit of doing to each other. But the point is not that nothing exists in America except this idea. It is that nothing like this idea exists anywhere except in America. This idea is not internationalism. On the contrary, it is decidedly nationalism. The Americans are very patriotic and wish to make their new citizens patriotic Americans. But it is the idea of making a new nation, literally out of any old nation, that comes along. In a word, what is unique is not America, but what is called Americanization. If we understand nothing, till we understand the amazing ambition to Americanize the Kamskatkin and Harry Anu, 
we are not trying to anglicize thousands of French cooks or Italian organ grinders. France is not trying to gallicize thousands of English trippers or German prisoners of war. America is the one place in the world where this process, healthy or unhealthy, possible or impossible, is going on. And the process, as I have pointed out, is not internationalization. It would be truer to say it is the nationalization of the internationalized. It is making a home out of vagabonds and a nation out of exiles. This is what at once illuminates and softens the moral regulations which we may really think fattest or fanatical. They are abnormal, but in one sense, this experiment of a home for the homeless is abnormal. In short, it has long been recognized that America was an asylum. It is only since prohibition that it has looked a little like a lunatic asylum. It was before sailing for America, as I have said, that I stood with the official paper in my hand and these thoughts in my head. It was while I stood on English soil that I passed through the two stages of smiling and then sympathizing, of realizing that my momentary amusement at being asked if I were not an anarchist was partly due to the fact that I was not an American. And in truth, I think there are some things a man ought to know about America before he sees it. What we know of a country beforehand may not affect what we see that it is, but it will vitally affect what we appreciate it for being, because it will vitally affect what we expect it to be. I can honestly say that I had never expected America to be what nine-tenths of the newspaper critics invariably assume it to be. I never thought it was a sort of Anglo-Saxon colony, knowing that it was more and more thronged with crowds of very different colonists. During the war I felt that the very worst propaganda for the Allies was the propaganda for the Anglo-Saxons. I try to point out that in one way America is nearer to Europe than England is. If she is not nearer to Bulgaria, she is nearer to Bulgars. If she is not nearer to Bohemia, she is nearer to Bohemians. In my New York hotel the head waiter in the dining room was a Bohemian. The lead waiter in the grill room was a Bulgar. Americans have nationalities at the end of the street, which for us are at the ends of the earth. I did my best to persuade my countrymen not to appeal to the American, as if he were a rather dowdy Englishman, who had been rusticating in the provinces and had not heard the latest news about the town. I shall record later some of those arresting realities which the traveller does not expect, and which, in some cases, I fear, he actually does not see, because he does not expect. I shall try to do justice to the psychology of what Mr. Belloc has called the eye-openers in travel. But there are some things about America that a man ought to see even with his eyes shut. One is that a state that came into existence solely through its repudiation and abhorrence of the British crown is not likely to be a respectful copy of the British Constitution. Another is that the chief mark of the Declaration of Independence is something that is not only absent from the British Constitution, but something which all our constitutionalists have invariably thanked God with the jolliest boasting and bragging that they had kept out of the British Constitution. It is the thing called abstraction or academic logic. It is the thing which such jolly people call theory, and which those who can practice it call thought. 
and the theory or thought is the very last to which english people are accustomed either by their social structure or their traditional teaching it is the theory of equality it is the pure classic conception that no man must aspire to be anything more than a citizen and that no man should endure to be anything less it is by no means especially intelligible to an Englishman who tends at his best to the virtues of the gentleman and at his worst to the vices of the snob. The idealism of England, or if you will, the romance of England, has not been primarily the romance of the citizen. But the idealism of America, we may safely say, still revolves entirely round the citizen and his romance. The realities are quite another matter, and we shall consider in its place the question of whether the ideal will be able to shape the realities, or will merely be beaten shapeless by them. The ideal is besieged by inequalities of the most towering and insane description in the industrial and economic fields. It may be devoured by modern capitalism, perhaps the worst inequality that ever existed among men. Of all that we shall speak later but citizenship is still the american ideal there is an army of actualities opposed to that ideal but there is no ideal opposed to that ideal american plutocracy has never got itself respected like english aristocracy citizenship is the american ideal and it has never been the english ideal but it is surely an ideal that may stir some imaginative generosity and respect in an englishman if he will condescend to be also a man. In this vision of moulding many peoples into the visible image of the citizen, he may see a spiritual adventure which he can admire from the outside, at least as much as he admires the valour of the Moslems, and much more than he admires the virtues of the Middle Ages. He need not set himself to develop equality, but he need not set himself to misunderstand it. He may at least understand what Jefferson and Lincoln meant, and he may possibly find some assistance in this task by reading what they said. He may realize that equality is not some crude fairy tale about all men being equally tall or equally tricky, which we not only cannot believe, but cannot believe in anybody believing. It is an absolute of morals by which all men have a value invariable and indestructible, and a dignity as intangible as death. He may at least be a philosopher, and see that equality is an idea, and not merely one of these soft-headed sceptics who, having risen by low tricks to high places, drink bad champagne in tawdry hotel lounges, and tell each other twenty times over with unwearied iteration that equality is an illusion. In truth, it is inequality that is the illusion the extreme disproportion between men that we seem to see in life is a thing of changing lights and lengthening shadows a twilight full of fancies and distortions we find a man famous and cannot live long enough to find him forgotten we see a race dominant and cannot linger to see it decay it is the experience of men that always returns to the equality of men it is the average that ultimately justifies the average man it is when men have seen and suffered much and come at the end of more elaborate experiments that they see men as men under an equal light of death and daily laughter and none the less mysterious for being many 
nor is it in vain that these western democrats have sought the blazonry of their flag in that great multitude of immoral lights that endure behind the fires we see and gathered them into the corner of old glory whose ground is like the glittering night for veritably in the spirit as well as in the symbol suns and moons and meteors pass and fill our skies with a fleeting and almost theatrical conflagration and wherever the old shadow stoops upon the earth the stars return the end of section two end of chapter one